joy to be with you celebrating Palm Sunday and uh, the entrance of our Savior into Jerusalem. This morning as we continue our study in the Gospel of Matthew, we back up a little bit to his preparation to head into Jerusalem. We're in chapter 19 of the Gospel of Matthew. So you can open your Bibles there and, and turn there with me. I imagine that if I were to ask for a show of hands, and I won't, but if I were to ask for a show of hands this morning about how many of you want to go to hell, I wouldn't see a single hand. I would hope that if I asked how many of you know that you are going to heaven, that I would see, I would love to say that I would see every hand raised. If you were to poll persons on the street and just go up to them and people do this, and ask, do you believe you're going to heaven or hell? Almost every single person, when first asked, says they're going to heaven. But when you begin to dig in and begin to ask, how certain are you? How do you know that you're going to heaven? That's where things begin to fall apart. There seems to be a great deal of uncertainty about how one can know they're going to heaven, at least in the world. I would say this, though, if we believe that heaven and hell are real places, then we would and should be like the merchant who, upon finding that pearl of great price, sold all that he had in order to obtain it. We would do everything we could to ensure we are going to heaven. So perhaps one of the more poignant questions is, why do we so often live like we prefer hell over heaven? Why are we so reticent to release and let go of our sin? Why do we think that we can come to God clinging to our sin, worshiping Him how we think He should be worshipped, offering, if I can borrow the illusion, strange fire like Nadab and Abihu in our worship? bringing our own spiritual self-sufficiency, our idolatrous desires, our activities, and the objects that we cling to in this life, unwilling to let them go? Why is it that we think that God will accept anything less than being wholly devoted to Him? At least by our actions. There was a young ruler, he lived a long time ago, over 2,000 years ago. He had devoted his life to following Scripture, to following the commands of Scripture, to being obedient to Scripture. In fact, compared to most of us in this room, he was the saint. We would uh, probably have called him a goody two-shoes, maybe a killjoy, a party pooper. He's the one who is straight-laced. He was absolutely focused on keeping every jot and tittle of what God had commanded, or so he thought, until one day, his world came crashing down around him, and he learned how absolutely useless all those efforts were in guaranteeing eternal life. He learned that even with all his work, he had chosen hell over heaven. All that effort, and he had chosen hell over heaven. We're going to meet that young man this morning in the pages of Scripture. 
And we're going to learn about several, or we're going to learn and observe several important lessons about what it means to inherit eternal life. What does it mean to be saved from the horrors of hell? How do we avoid the same devastating mistake of choosing hell over heaven, especially when we work and we try so hard? Well, if you have your Bibles open, you can read along with me in Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 13. Then some children were brought to him so that he might lay hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Let the little children alone, and do not hinder them from coming to me. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And after laying hands on them, he departed from there. And someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good, but... If you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Then he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not commit murder, shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, If you wish to be complete, go, sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, Then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, With people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Let's pray. Fathers, we open up your word this morning to perhaps what is one of the saddest texts in all of Scripture. Pray that you would help us to see it clearly, that your spirit will work to Instruct us, to guide us, to convict us, to teach us. That we would avoid the errors of this young man, this rich ruler. That we would pursue you with whole hearts, wholly devoted to you. Help us to be like little children. Help us to be like that this morning as we come, desiring to learn and to grow and to mature. In your name. Amen. You might be excused for thinking at first, verses 13 through 15 really don't belong with what follows. It's its own little section. Doesn't really pertain to the story of the rich young ruler so much. In fact, he even gets up and leaves after that. And I can understand that. 
However, this brief interaction in verses 13 through 15, it really helps to set the context for what follows. In fact, it actually makes it even more sobering. See, verses 13 to 15, what the gospel writers do, what happened in the life of Christ as he was going about reorients us to a central theme of Jesus' message. We saw it in chapter 18, right there at the beginning in the first nine verses, where they remind us that our faith must be like that of a child's. Now, we don't know exactly why the disciples tried to stop the children from coming or being brought by their parents. Maybe they just thought they were a nuisance. Maybe they didn't like crying babies. Maybe they were in a hurry to get on down to Jerusalem. I mean, at this point, they're thinking, we're entering the city and taking it. It's ours. We're going to rule there. Perhaps they didn't appreciate this interruption to the start of that journey. Perhaps they thought these little children were not important enough to occupy Jesus' time. Do you not know who this is? Stop wasting his time. Whatever the reason, they're sharply rebuked. Why? Well, text tells us. Because the kingdom of heaven belongs to, or more accurately is comprised of, is made up of such as these. Jesus did not say the kingdom of heaven belongs specifically or only to these children, but to such as these. The children then are a picture, an illustration, just as they were in chapter 18, of what a true disciple, a true follower, one who inherits the kingdom of God, what they look like. They look like these children. This is not a new metaphor, a new illustration. We find it all throughout Scripture. In fact, we find it all the way back in the Old Testament. But perhaps you're more familiar with that nighttime rendezvous between Jesus and Nicodemus, where he tells Nicodemus, you must become like a child again. A true disciple must be marked then by the qualities of childlikeness. Which qualities specifically? Well, the one we've seen throughout our study of the Gospel of Matthew, the one that was first introduced to us in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, is that we must have this poverty of spirit, this vulnerability of spirit. When it comes to our spirituality, we acknowledge, we recognize that we are poor in spirit. We bring nothing, we have nothing to offer. In other words, Jesus says, disciples, you're right, they've got nothing to offer. By man's standards, they don't belong here in my presence. But such as these, who have nothing to offer, who come saying, I've got nothing. Lord, there's, there's no reason you would accept me. There is nothing that I have done. There is nothing that I can bring to the table when it comes to my spirituality. These are the ones for whom the kingdom of God is reserved. And there's other ways. There's other things we can seek to imitate in this childlikeness. It certainly begins with that weakness, that poverty of spirit. One of the other things we note about children is they grow and they mature. They know they need to grow up. My children are constantly asking questions like, when will I be old enough to do this? When can I drive? Never. When can I get married? Never. 
Children understand the need to mature and to grow. True disciples, likewise, recognize their need to grow, their need to mature. You see, children are also dependent upon the parents. Luke says in this same gospel account that some of those, maybe even a good number of those who were coming were babies. A baby is utterly dependent upon his or her parents. A true disciple is going to demonstrate this same dependence. And this is one, I guess, important distinction is we don't grow out of this. And like a babe that becomes more and more independent, we never grow out of that dependence and that need for Christ. Or that desire for our parent, the way that a young child cries for its mother. Children are also natural learners by nature. They want to learn. A true disciple of Jesus Christ, a disciple means a learner. A true disciple of Jesus Christ yearns to learn about God, to learn about Christ, to become more like Him. It's another way in which children, we are to be like children. Children want to imitate their parents. I think I've used this illustration before, and I'll be downstairs working in my office, and I, I like to pace when I'm on the phone or talking. And more than once, Judah especially will walk into my office, and I'll turn around, and he's pacing behind me, trying to step where I step. Children want to be like their parents. Children are likewise not distracted by a desire for many of the things of this world, money, power, prestige. We'll see this contrast momentarily even greater. A baby especially wants nothing other than their mother or father. That's all they want. That's all they care about. And even as they grow, they still want to be close. I had to run to the store last night right before the kids' bedtime, and Judah overheard me, and he ran up, and he said, can I go with you? Because he wanted to be with me. We should want to be with our Father. These are just some of the ways in which a true disciple is like these children for whom the kingdom of heaven is reserved. It begins to lay the foundation. It sets the context for what follows. All three of the gospel writers, what we call the synoptic gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all of them tell of this interaction that took place with Jesus and these children as they were preparing to head to Jerusalem in order to set the scene for what follows. Eventually, the crowd ran out of babies for Jesus to bless and children to pray over, and he and the disciples departed. And shortly after this, he's approached. We don't know if he had stopped and was resting at the time. He was at least proceeding slow enough that, according to Mark, the man knelt before him. But Matthew tells us someone came to him. Now, we've already read ahead, so we've cheated a bit. We know that this is a young and wealthy, and if you've read Luke, ruler. He possesses some level of authority in and around Israel. And what does it say? The man runs up to him and says, teacher. Now, stop right there. Do you notice anything interesting about that statement, particularly compared to the disciples? 
He calls him teacher, rabbi. This is not the address of a disciple. You will not find in the Gospels a disciple addressing Jesus as teacher or rabbi. You'll find him addressing him predominantly as Lord, as Master, as Savior, as Son of David, but you will not find him addressing him as teacher or rabbi. The disciples consistently refer to Jesus by his titles. And so immediately, Matthew lets us know this man is not a disciple. He does not recognize Jesus as Lord or as Savior. He is respectful, but ignorant. Mark says he even knelt down. He's being respectful. There's no disrespect here, unlike perhaps the Pharisees and others, but there is ignorance with who exactly he is dealing with. And he says, what good thing must I do to have to own eternal life? He wants to know what he can do so that eternal life in his mind is something then that is earned. It is something deserved on the basis of deeds. And so how does Jesus respond? He has to correct several things. Just from that one question, he has to correct several things in this young man's thinking and his understanding. First and foremost, of goodness and what it means to have eternal life. This young ruler wants to be good enough to have and own eternal life. What, what thing must I do? And it's implied so that I can be good enough to have eternal life. There's a problem with that though, isn't there? Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20. Solomon writes, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Psalm 14, verse 2. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. And guess what he finds? They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Paul reiterates the same thing in Romans chapter 3, quoting both of those two passages. There is only one who is good, and to that one belongs immortality and eternal life, and he's not found walking on two legs. 1 Timothy 1.17, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That's the one to whom eternal life belongs. It is the only one who is good. And so this young man, whether he realized it or not, has quite an inflated view of himself. He is confident that he is, or is at least close enough to goodness, that he can earn this eternal life, this immortality, and that he can obtain this goodness that belongs only to God. Now, he probably wouldn't have said it that way. But that's what Jesus is exposing is in his heart. Now what's interesting is that he knows enough to know that he doesn't yet have it, or what I actually suspect is that he's uncertain and he wants that certainty. Just like the person on the street that you may ask, where are you going? Well, I'm going to heaven. Are you sure about that? Well, I hope so. I think that's where he sat. He hoped so because he had done an awful lot to get there. 
By the way, any belief that salvation comes through efforts is going to leave uncertainty. If you believe eternal life is based on your efforts, then that means that you can lose it as easy as you can gain it. And what a discouraging and depressing place to be. We'll talk about that more in a moment. Because despite this young man's flawed thinking that Jesus is beginning to expose, he's willing to still carry on the conversation with him. In spite of its perilous start. And what Jesus does throughout the rest of this interaction with this young man is lay bare the idols of his heart. And how truly short that human effort comes in obtaining eternal life. Notice first that Jesus changes the answer a bit. He didn't quite answer the question the young man asked. The young man wants to know, how do I have, how do I own, how is it mine, eternal life? And Jesus answers and says, to paraphrase a bit, you cannot have or own eternal life. That's what the young man had asked for. No, you enter into eternal life. It is not yours to own. It is no man's to own because, again, it belongs only to the one who is good, God. This young man wants to know what human effort is required to achieve eternal life. Well, if he wants to know, Jesus will tell him. There actually is a way to do it. You have to keep the commandments. Now, what is Jesus doing here? He's pointing him back to the law, to the Old Testament. It's because the law is good. It's a, it's a tutor. It's a teacher. Paul tells us that in Galatians. But what does that mean? What does it mean that the law is a tutor, that it's a teacher? This is a good example. It's an example of how it teaches. Because what it teaches is that perfect obedience to the law will make someone good. If you can obey the law perfectly in every respect, you will be good and you will have eternal life. problem is what? No one can keep the law perfectly. That's what it teaches. It teaches us that we're not good enough and we need the one who is good. The problem is no one can keep it perfectly. So the law, what it should do is drive us to that place of spiritual poverty, of crying out for mercy, for the grace of God, for the mercy of God. But instead, this young man seems to have missed the point again. Instead of recognizing, as James notes, that perfection requires perfect obedience to every commandment, James 2.10, for everyone who keeps the whole law, and yet stumbles in one point, he's guilty as if he had broke the entire thing. And so this young man asks, almost like he's wearing blinders. You know, like they put on horses so they can't see anything else except for what's right in front of them. This young man has a one-track mind. He misses the big picture, and instead he's thinking that Jesus is about to give him the commandment, the singular commandment that if he can keep it, he can have this assurance of eternal life that he so desperately desires. He's worked so hard, how can he be sure and not doubt? Well, Jesus plays along so skillfully, like a surgeon wielding a scalpel, like a master artist carefully painting a picture. He lists several of the commandments. In fact, some of them seem rather easy to keep, right? Don't murder. Any murderers here? Okay, we've kept that one. And he begins to go on. Shall not commit adultery. Honor your father and mother. Maybe a little bit harder. 
Then he adds, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, jumping from the Ten Commandments in Exodus, a few of them that he was listing, all the way over to Leviticus, Leviticus 19. Well, the young man is very familiar with these commandments. That wasn't what he was asking for. He was asking for the commandment that would give him certainty. He knew these. In fact, to him, these are easy, or so he thinks. Mark says that his response was that he's kept these things since he was a youth, since he was a young man. Now, I'm going to call a little bit of a foul here. You've got to wonder how far back he's going. If I know anything about children, having been one, it says sin and selfishness don't have to be taught. But again, the young man misses the big picture. He's not always done these things, but that's not the point. Ever since he can remember trying, he's been doing these things. He's got a very inflated view of himself. Mark tells us at this point that rather than being irritated with them, rather than being frustrated with them, rather than being angered or impatient with them, do you know what Jesus felt toward him? He felt love and compassion. He felt love and compassion just as Jesus looked over Jerusalem and felt great compassion and love for their spiritual blindness and desire to draw them in as a mother hen does her chicks. So Jesus feels great love and compassion over this poor, this lost, this desperate young man. Desperate to know how to have eternal life. Having been desperately trying, spinning his wheels. But so lost, so blind. So Jesus, out of that love, continues the lesson. And it's now that we see even more so how skillfully Jesus addressed this young man how astutely he strikes at the idolatrous heart that exists within one who prides himself on his spirituality. Here's a young man who prides himself on being one who keeps the law, who stands out among his peers. You know what Jesus is about to do is to expose what John Calvin says, a heart that is constantly producing idols. It's an idol factory. And what follows is Jesus giving him a commandment. Okay, young man, you want a commandment? You want a new commandment, one that will give you certainty. I'll give it to you. This is for him. This isn't necessarily for you. But we have much to learn from it. If you want a commandment, an instruction that will demonstrate you have entered into eternal life, here it is. And Jesus, here in this verse uses the term perfect. Some of your translations may say complete in verse 21. But it's the same word we find in Matthew 5, 48, where Jesus tells his disciple, if they want to earn salvation, that's what he's addressing in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, if you want to earn salvation, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's where you've got to go. Which again is a human impossibility. It goes back to Leviticus 19, which, by the way, was that final commandment that he issued to him. That was down in 19, I think it's verse 8. But if you read up to verse 2, you're reminded that from the beginning it was be holy as God is holy. It's the same idea as be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the standard. So you want to be perfect. You want to be good. You want to be like God and have eternal life? Here's what you need to do. You need 
to lay aside your greatest idol, your wealth. He tells this young man, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, then come and follow me. I want you to really demonstrate that you love your neighbor as yourself. Go give it all away. What you need is not more obedience, but an undivided heart, and right now it's divided. So go give it all away. See, this young man believed he had truly embodied the command to love his neighbor as himself, but what Jesus shows him is that he's really been focused on himself. He is inherently selfish. He doesn't love the Lord with all his heart, all his soul, all his mind, and all his strength. He's been more concerned with amassing his wealth than with his neighbors, more concerned with his treasure than his love for the Lord. And so Jesus, in addressing this young man, this rich young man dealt precisely with what it was that prevents him from entering into eternal life. And it's what he loved more than he loved the Lord. And so, in what is perhaps one of the saddest verses in all of the New Testament, the young man walks away grieving, not repenting, not rejoicing, but grieving. Do you know what you're asking, Jesus? Do you know what you're asking me to do? Do you know how hard I've worked for all this? Do you not realize how much good I could do with all the wealth I've amassed? Jesus calls this young man to relinquish his wealth in order to demonstrate an inward change, an inward and undivided heart of devotion. The problem is, he can't do it. Why? Because there has been no inward change in this young man, in this young ruler. And so he goes away grieving. Because he cannot do it. Now before we turn to the disciples and Jesus addressing them in verse 23, and their response, I have to stop and ask, Are any of you here this morning with divided loyalty? Are any of you here still clinging to something? It might be money, but it could be something else. Something else that has your allegiance. What are you holding on to that prevents you from loving the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and with all your strength? Jesus showed this man that for all his efforts, he was spiritually bankrupt. But instead of crying out for mercy, he went away grieving. Do not leave this morning with that same grief. Do not leave here grieving this morning. Instead, cry out to the Lord. Acknowledge your spiritual neediness, your inability to earn salvation through your efforts, and turn to the Lord. Cry out to Him. There's none that He will turn away. As the footsteps get softer and quieter as He goes away, Jesus turns to face His disciples. And He directs His attention to them and He says... Or actually, he addresses something that was on their minds. You see, most Jews and Jewish thinking is that the rich 
are expected to inherit eternal life, not because their wealth could buy their way into heaven, but their wealth testified to the blessing of the Lord in their lives. That was the expectation. That was the understanding. And Jesus wants to make it clear that far from being a blessing, wealth is often a curse in this world in that it can create a great hindrance to discipleship. He's not telling every disciple to go divest of everything they have, but he is warning them of the dangers of wealth. The disciples were shocked and they were disturbed by what Jesus says. Verses 23 through 24 where he tells them that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, he goes on to say he ups the ante with this hyperbole of a camel going through the eye of the needle. Some have tried to downplay this into something that was actually plausible, a needle's eye gate that the camel could squeeze through if it was just right. No. The point is that it's impossible. What does he say a couple verses later? It is impossible. The disciples understood this. It is utterly impossible for a rich man or for any person who values something in this life more than they value eternity, more than they value devotion to the Lord to enter the kingdom of heaven. And they are shocked and disturbed by this statement. This is not what they had grown up hearing or learning. And if those who seem to have God's favor on their lives could not be saved, if a rich man who had his favor and who lived so carefully could not save himself and be certain of his salvation, then what hope did anyone have of earning and securing their salvation? And that's the point. You get it. Exactly. Matthew says that Jesus stared at them. This wasn't to intimidate them. It wasn't to humiliate them. It was to drive home one of the most important lessons that they or any person can learn. Salvation belongs to the Lord, not to any one person. Psalm 3.8, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. Isaiah 43.11, I, even I am the Lord and there is no Savior besides me. There is no earning of salvation. There's no being a savior of myself. It is given and dispensed by God. Entrance is granted, not earned. And so Jesus notes again, with persons it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Even the most hardened heart can be softened by God. Even those Ninevites that we studied this past summer can turn to the Lord with God. And Jesus notes, with persons it is impossible, with God all things are possible. And God has made this possible for all who come to Jesus as Lord, not as teacher, not as instructor, but they come to Him as Lord. As children crying out for sustenance, we must come crying out for mercy because of our spiritual neediness. You see, the young man saw Christ as a source of information and morality. That's how he viewed him. He was a source of information, a source of moral teaching. But those first few verses that set the context, those children and parents saw Christ for who he was. 
Savior, the offerer of salvation. And so we must come as one of those. There's a final note that should be mentioned, and that is with regard to wealth and riches. And it's here. It may not be the main point, but it's an important point, and that's why we should be wary of wealth. It will not bring greater happiness or joy in this life. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, and one of the wealthiest, noted that happiness cannot be found in great wealth or riches. In fact, the only thing you can be assured of if your pursuit and your goal in life is the accumulation of wealth, is great sorrow, sadness, and grief. If that is the goal of your life, you will have great sorrow, sadness, and grief. Paul, writing to Timothy, notes at the end of 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7, he says, For we brought nothing into this world, and so we can't take anything out of it either. That's a helpful reminder. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things. You man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. It's in light of this warning here in Matthew 19 and the warnings we find throughout Scripture, especially here in 1 Timothy 6, that I would exhort you to take careful stock of your wealth. And for some of you, you may legitimately need more. Maybe you barely have enough, but for others, you may have enough for more than one lifetime. I think it would be a wonderful thing if Christians would determine to not let their standard of living rise significantly with increases in finances. There's no need for lavishness. We can't take it with us. Fancy cars, fancy boats, watches, shoes, they all rot and decay. Instead, make it your ambition to divest of as much as you reasonably can. First, care for your family. It's the right thing to do. James makes that abundantly clear. One who doesn't care for his family is worse than an unbeliever. Care for your family. Take care of your family. Provide for them. Includes as much as possible planning for the future and catastrophic events. But you can't control everything. But then work to increase the amount you can give away. It may ebb and flow throughout your life as God brings seasons of plenty and seasons of scarcity. But make it your ambition to divest if greater wealth is entrusted to you, it's not for you yourself. It's to bless others. No kingdom or legacy you try to make for yourself on this earth is going to last. In fact, if I try to amass wealth and it stays with me clutched, as one commentator says, in my sinful hands, it can do great damage to me and to people around me. That's what Paul was getting to in 1 Timothy 6. Rather, exchange the treasure on this earth for treasure in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy, where thieves cannot break in and steal. But again, it wasn't the wealth or the money that was the primary issue for this young man. It was 
a symptom, but the primary issue was the man's heart. The money just revealed the heart condition. The man was unwilling to do all that was needed to be holy, to be perfect, to become a disciple. The man reveled in his spiritual pride, unwilling to acknowledge his spiritual neediness. Instead, he trusted in his wealth. He trusted in his spiritual self-sufficiency. And we learn here that if this young man wants treasure in heaven, he must surrender treasure on earth. And the implication for us is we need to do the same whatever that treasure may be. It may not be finances and wealth. Every aspect of life, certainly including one's earthly goods, but every aspect of life must be used for God rather than self. Your time, your talents, your abilities, your efforts, your energies. It's true of every one of us. If you are holding on to something that is preventing you from serving God, or if you're unwilling to use your efforts and that time and those resources for God instead of yourself, then you are this young man. Each of us, when we come to this passage, should stop and ask, how am I like this young man? But then we shouldn't leave the passage until we've resolved it the way Christ calls him to resolve it. Turn it over to the Lord. What area of your life have you carved out? Are you unwilling to turn over to God? Don't leave this morning without letting it go. Do not leave here this morning like the young man, sad, discouraged, defeated, because you are unwilling to let go of the sin that is a hindrance. Do not burden your conscience that way if you are a believer, if you are a disciple. Do not lose the joy of your salvation with the weight of holding on to this. Instead, cast your cares upon the Lord for He cares for you. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful this morning for these reminders, many reminders. Father, I pray that we would be as the children that are put forward as an illustration for how we are to live in spiritual neediness, in spiritual growth, in spiritual yearning. Would that mark our lives? Would we be quick to cast aside whatever hindrance, whatever entangles us, and to run with patience and endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Help us to do that this morning. Amen.
Paul writing to Timothy closes out his first epistle saying, He who is blessed, the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. You are not dismissed this morning. Um, if you would, go ahead and take your seats. Uh, we have uh, a special privilege this morning as David, Dad, comes up um, of installing Grady Cook as an elder. So.